Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning, by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. For your servants are listening. And let us hear the eternal word. For all flesh is like grass, and all flesh like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the passages in the scripture where we learn about the greatness of God's love is in the parable often known as the prodigal son. Jesus tells this parable of two brothers. The younger brother came to his father and asked for his share of property that was coming to him. He asked 
as it were, for his inheritance in advance. The father gives him his inheritance, and the younger son immediately packs up all that he has and journeys to a far country, and there he squanders his property in reckless living. It says he devoured his father's property in the pursuit of prostitutes. He spent everything he had, and then a famine arose in the land, and the son had to hire himself out just so that he could feed himself. His job was to feed the pigs, but so great was the famine, and so empty was this son's belly, and so desperately hungry was he that he longed to be fed with the pods that he was feeding to the pigs. It was in this miserable state that the younger son came to his senses. It says, he came to himself. Such an important and necessary state. How awful would it be for anyone never to come to themselves, never come to their senses? Too many are embarrassed. Too many think it's too radical some might think it makes them too vulnerable, vulnerable, that they would have to open up themselves to admit wrongdoing and failure. But here, the younger son came to himself. Do you pray for people in your life that you know that they would come to themselves, that they would come to their own senses? This younger son realized his father's servants never were hungry, but they were well provided for. And so he decided to go back to his father, confess his his sin, willingly accept that he was no longer worthy to be called his son, but desiring at least to be considered to be hired as a servant. And then the scene changes. We go from hearing about the younger son's mind and heart, we come to see the father. And the father sees his younger son coming back to him. The father, it says, saw his son from some distance. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion toward him. And then he did something that was unheard of in Jesus' day. The father ran to his son. You didn't do that in Jesus' culture. It wasn't stoic. It wasn't measured. It wasn't controlled. But the father ran to his son. It was so urgent. It was so necessary. And the father, when he reached his son, he embraced him. He drew him up in his arms And he began to kiss him. What affection, what love, what care, what concern, what compassion. Even before the son was able to get one word out of his mouth, the father had already smothered him with abundant affection. The son who had despised his inheritance. The son who had squandered everything with reckless living. The son who had sinned against his father. The son who had rejected his father. Now the father lavished his love on him. The son who was once dead 
is now alive. The son who was once lost is now found. Such a parable resonates with the scene that we read about here in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai. The people of Israel, whom God had called His firstborn son. This is the son that He had saved from the land of Egypt out of their slavery. This is the son whom He had redeemed out of the iron furnace with His mighty hand. The son to whom everything was promised, the son to whom everything would be provided. But the people had spurned their father. They had made a golden calf and worshipped it. They had despised their inheritance. They had lived recklessly. They had sinned against their father. They had rejected their God. Their relationship was broken, was damaged, even to go so far as to say it was destroyed. Moses had to intercede before the Lord because of the people's great sin. He makes this audacious claim then to ask God to show him his glory. And what does the Lord do? What does God do? What does the Father do? He opens his heart wide to his people. It is in these verses that we get a glimpse of the greatness of our Father's heart towards His people. And so where are you this morning and what do you need this morning? Perhaps you need the Father to open His heart wide to you. The relationship that had been broken So it needed to be renewed, it needed to be reconciled, it needed to be restored. How was this going to happen? Through the Lord opening His heart to His people to show them again who He truly was. God had not broken the relationship. God had not done anything to make the relationship go sideways. The people were responsible and guilty for everything being broken. But it was God who would renew. It was God who would make it right again. We are about to cover some of the most important verses in the Bible. Some of these verses give a snapshot of what is happening over the course of the whole Bible. We would do well to pay attention to these, not only to know our Bibles better, but to know God, who He is, what He has done, His plan of redemption. And so our focus starts on what the Lord has done to bring renewal. He is going to renew this relationship with his people. How is he going to do that? How is the Lord going to bring renewal? Well, there are four particular truths we will see with this renewal. We will only cover two today. You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. Number one, the Lord's preparation before renewal. So there's going to be renewal that's coming, but the Lord is going to prepare, make a way so that this renewal can happen. What happens when there is a break in a relationship? When there is distance between two parties? There's a coldness. There's a a separation that's taken place. When I fail my wife, when I sin against my wife, when I disappoint my wife, I don't want that separation for long. 
I want to know her warmth again. I want to know her kindness again. God had just been sinned against by his beloved firstborn son of Israel in the vilest and most disgusting way. They had cheated on him. They had violated him. They had spurned him. They had blasphemed his holy name. But now, God does the opposite of what we would do. What happens when someone sins against us? Let them come to me. I'm not going to them. They hurt me. They wounded me. I am going to stand aloof. In fact, I'm not only going to stand aloof, I'm going to make that person jump over a bunch of hurdles just to get to me. I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to give them the cold shoulder. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to give them the silent treatment, but not God. Praise God that he does not stand aloof from his people. He does not give them the cold shoulder. He does not give them the silent treatment. He does not ignore them. He does what can be the most difficult thing to do. He opens his heart to his people and prepares a way forward. He initiates the renewal. He starts it. The Lord, Yahweh, speaks to Moses. Moses is supposed to cut two tablets, two stone tablets again. These stone tablets are to be like the first two stone tablets. Well, where are those first stone tablets? If you remember, God, it appears, had cut those first two stone tablets himself. And then God had written with his own finger on those two tablets his law. Moses had brought those first tablets down Mount Sinai, but when Moses saw the sin of the Israelites, he broke those tablets as a vivid picture of the people breaking their relationship with the Lord. And so they need two new tablets. And now Moses had to cut the tablets. The first time it looks like God cut the tablets. The first time when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he went up empty-handed. Now this time, he has to cut out the tablets, and now he's carrying these blank tablets up Mount Sinai. Moses was to present himself on the mountain before the Lord. He was to be alone, no other person. The first time Moses went up, Aaron went up, or was supposed to go halfway up with him. What happened to Aaron? He led the people into sin. Now it's Moses and Moses alone going up the mountain. Not even so much as an animal was to be grazing on Mount Sinai when Moses went up. And so Moses did as he was told. He rose up early in the morning showing the priority and the urgency of the action he was taking. He took the two tablets and he ascended the hill of the Lord. And while Moses went up, the Lord came down. Yahweh descended again upon Mount Sinai as he did in chapter 19. And the contrasting actions here are important. Moses going up, God coming down. As these actions represent the separation between the people, Israel, at the foot of the mountain, and God who is above all creation. Here is the Lord over everything, above all creation, coming down to his people. 
And Moses' action of going up reminds the people of their humble and low estate. The Lord descending is a vivid reminder of His absolute supremacy over everything. His power, His authority, and His sovereignty are so great and so immense that He knows no equal. This God is incomparable. What kind of preparation is needed in order to bring renewal? A reminder that God is God and we are not. A reminder that He is the Creator and we are the creature. A reminder of the song that's sung in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It is this God who would descend to his people who would open his heart wide. So the Lord initiates the renewal. He prepares the way. And then secondly, the Lord's proclamation is the basis for the renewal. The Lord's proclamation is the basis for the renewal. He's prepared the way, and now he's going to make this proclamation. And this is the foundation of the renewal that was going to take place. The relationship could not be reconciled. It could not be brought back together unless the Lord had done what he is about to do. Remember that Moses had asked the Lord to show him his glory, and the Lord said that he would make all of his goodness pass before him, and that he would proclaim the name of the Lord. That's what's happening now. The Lord is fulfilling the promise that he made to Moses. So the presence of God descended upon the mountain, and there's this glory cloud that surrounds Moses. And it says there that Yahweh took his stand with Moses and proclaimed or called out his name. What is this name? Well, the Lord's name is not merely Yahweh. It's the culmination of who God is. The name of the Lord is the very person, nature, character, the attributes of God himself. To know the Lord's name is to know the Lord. And this is the Lord proclaiming His own name. We are not the ones deciding who God is or what God does or doesn't do. We are not making the Lord conform to our definition of who He is. It's the Lord telling us, revealing Himself to us. He is his own determiner of who he is. It's his self-revelation to us. And it begins with this exclamatory repetition. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. It's to grab our attention. It's to arrest us. It's meant to make us captivated by this name. And it confronts us with the urgency to know the name of the Lord. It reminds us of the beginning of the book of Exodus when Moses asked God, what if the people ask me your name? What should I say to them? And God says, I am who I am. Say to them, I am has sent me to you. And so we are reminded of the self-existent Lord. He needs no one or depends upon anyone for anything. He is the eternal God, the self-sufficient God. He is 
the God who always has been, who always is, and who always will be. He is the beginning and the end. We have nothing he needs, and he has everything we need. And all that, he need, all that we need, he gives to us as he reveals his nature to us. So we're going to work through the Lord's name proclaimed in these verses, particularly verse 6 and 7. This is the God who is merciful and gracious. Merciful could also be translated compassionate. He relents and does not give us what we rightly deserve. He stays his hand and does what is necessary instead to relieve us of our misery. This is something that we must understand about the Lord's compassion. It's not merely a feeling. It's an action. Sometimes we think compassion merely in that feeling type of way. I felt compassion for this person or I felt compassion for that person. But true compassion actually goes so far as to relieve someone who is in misery. So he is merciful. He is also gracious. He gives his favor to those unworthy and undeserving of his Favor. His grace is what we could never earn and what we never, by our own merit, deserve. The merciful and gracious God means He saves His people. And God only ever saves people because He is gracious. Salvation only happens by grace. God's grace lavished upon ruined sinners. There is no other way, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that what? No one may boast. The Lord's name proclaims you cannot save yourself. Your effort, your merit will never bring you into God's presence. It is only by His mercy and His grace that you are ever able to approach Him or know Him or be saved by Him. Why do you think Paul over and over and over again in his epistles in the New Testament says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even two times he says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul say that over and over and over again? Grace, mercy, and peace, these words include everything which man needs or can desire. Everything that you need is wrapped up in those words, grace, mercy, and peace. Everything that you desire is wrapped up in those words, grace, mercy, and peace. God's mercy and grace are what lead us to be able to be at peace with God. His mercy and grace are what make it possible for us to be at one with the Lord. Without this mercy and grace, we are undone. We are lost. We are left in our miserable state of sin, and we are left alone. But God goes on to say, he is also slow to anger. Or he is long to anger. It takes a long time 
for God to get angry. Do we ever stop to meditate on the fact that Yahweh is slow to anger and that he is slow to anger toward us? Christians are the beneficiaries of God's slowness. Slow to anger is a divine attribute of God. Slow to anger and wrath and judgment is evident in the fact that you are alive today. We are not born, as some suggest, tabula rasa, that is, as a blank slate. We are born sinners. We are conceived as sinners. We possess original sin. Because of this, God has every right to damn us to hell and to throw us into the lake of fire the moment that we are conceived. There is deceit and danger among some who would say that they have always believed. Let me say that again. There is a danger and a deceit among some who would say they have always believed. That there was never a time when they didn't believe. The threat and the deceit is that such a statement is completely and utterly, utterly contrary to the word of God. In other words, that's not what the Bible teaches. There had to be a time when you didn't believe. Otherwise, when were you converted? When were you born again? It sounds good, doesn't it? I've always believed. I've always believed. It sounds good. It sounds spiritual, but it's not. Make Making such a statement is rarely coupled with the conviction of sin. These testimonies lack repentance. They don't need it. You see, they have always believed. And what happens to these people? They don't want to talk about their sin. And while they would never say it, they are too clever for that. On a certain level, they say they have no sin, making God a liar and they deny that the Lord is slow to anger. You see, when they say they have always believed, they are not a beneficiary of God's slowness to anger. They cannot be. For in their eyes, God did not need to be slow in his anger toward them. But without a God who is slow to anger, you might possess a lot of things, but you don't possess God. If you don't need God who is slow to anger towards you, then you completely dispense of God himself. You reject what he says about you, namely that you are a great sinner and you need a God who is slow to anger in order to know the great Savior, Jesus Christ. And do we ever notice that we want the Lord to be slow to anger towards us, but how easy it is for us to despise God's slowness of anger towards others? Particularly those who we think deserve His swift judgment. Yet God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. And so we thank God that he is slow to anger. He is patient with us. And we see his patience extended to our beloved ones. 
who we pray would come to know Christ. But let us never think that we do not need a God who is slow to anger. God is also abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These two ideas go together. We see them often together in the Old Testament. Steadfast love is this covenantal, loyal love, a completely committed and undying love. One children's Bible describes it this way. It is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. There is also faithfulness or truthfulness expressed in this steadfast love. God's faithfulness is seen in his willingness to show his true nature through renewing the covenant with his people despite their sin. Even think about it in these terms. How faithful is God being to his people that he does not cast them off, but that he comes to renew relationship with them, even here in Exodus 34. And we're reminded of what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is steadfast love and faithful. And here we see the immensity of God's love. It goes on to talk about this steadfast love, doesn't it? Keeping steadfast love for thousands. How deep and how wide is the love of God? It's designated for thousands. And the thought is that it goes on to thousands and thousands and thousands. God's promise to continue His covenantal love as expressed in His covenantal blessing. So He's saying, I'm going to make this covenant with you, I'm going to have this relationship with you, and out of this relationship are going to be blessings beyond your wildest imagination. And guess what? That is going to continue indefinitely. How is this steadfast love and this faithfulness expressed through the God who forgives sin? The God who is willing not to hold people's sins against them forever, but to forgive them, but to pardon them, but to declare them innocent. And here it is, the Lord forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. Do you see that there in verse 7? Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Or wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Why? This is the full spectrum of sin. This is the full gambit, as it were. What kind of sin are we specifically talking about? All of it. All sin. Every shade and stripe. It's used to express the totality of our sins against God. But... God declaring that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin is also a declaration of his complete forgiveness of sin for all who repent and forsake their sin. He will forgive all your sin with full and complete forgiveness. We are complete sinners, but God is a complete Savior. 
And God does not reluctantly forgive our sins. He does so eagerly, willingly, as a demonstration to his holy nature, whereby he delights to forgive us of our sin. God delights in forgiving sinners. God does not forgive like we forgive. What a revealing of the glory of God before the eyes of Moses. And there's also this revealing of his holiness, a warning, a reminder that God's holiness is the beginning of renewal and revival. We see ourselves as sinners as we have never seen before, but also God will by no means clear the guilty. All of God's grace and mercy and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness does not mean he is willing to ignore sin or sweep it under the rug. Those who are guilty are those who remain entrenched in their sin, those who have hard, impenetrable hearts, and those who are blind and have been deceived. Those who are enslaved to their sins will be judged. He will not leave them unpunished for their sins. And we see a, the horrid nature of sin here. Sin never stays isolated. We like to think it does. Sin never stays in its own little silo, as it were. It wreaks havoc on others around us. What happens here to the fathers who are entrenched in their sins? They teach it to their children and their children's children. God is not judging here down to the third and fourth generation for sins of the fathers. The problem is the children have become like the fathers. They are guilty of the same sins. In fact, maybe we could say it the other way around, that let not the children to the third and the fourth generation think that their fathers have been punished for the sins that they continue to do. Like, oh, our fathers were punished for these sins, so we're okay, we're good, we can do these things. The Lord says, no, no, no. The fathers and their children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation will be punished if they remain in their sin, if they stay in their sin. And what's amazing here is that there is this contrast. The steadfast love of the Lord abounds to thousands and thousands and thousands while the judgment of the Lord is definite. It's a lifetime. It's only to the third and the fourth generation. In fact, there's a sense of plurality with thousands, and there's a sense of singularity with the guilty. All of this is an echo of the second commandment to the Israelites that had received the law. If you just turn back in your Bibles a few pages Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Pause there for a moment. What had the Israelites done? This very thing. They had broken this commandment specifically. I mean, they had broken other ones, but they had definitely broken this one. What else does it say here, though? 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. What is the Lord doing now when he proclaims his name? He is reminding them of this second commandment, the commandment that they had explicitly broken. And he says, I want to remind you of this commandment that has devastated and destroyed our relationship. But I'm telling you who I am because who I am is going to restore this relationship that you have broken. And do you notice how the Lord reverses now the order? First, it was in the commandment, those who commit iniquity and sin and those who hate the Lord, and then the Lord giving steadfast love to the thousands. Now what is it? First, it is the Lord keeping steadfast love for thousands and then visiting the iniquity on the, father, on the children and the fathers. This inversion is important because it tells us the Lord is emphasizing His steadfast love. That's what comes first. That's what the people needed to know. They needed to know the Lord's steadfast love. He had opened up His arms to them again wide so that He might lavish His love upon them. His delight, His joy, His priority is on showing His steadfast love. His program is about lavishing His amazing unending and boundless love on many, many people. And abounding in steadfast love and in faithfulness forgives sin. Take, uh, look, at me, look with me in your Bibles at Proverbs 16.6. Proverbs 16.6. Proverbs 16.6. The verses from Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are echoed all throughout the Old Testament. You go through the Old Testament, you're not going to get away from these verses. The Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, what? Iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Why is the steadfast love of the Lord and His faithfulness so necessary? Because it's through His steadfast love that He will atone for iniquity. How has this happened? Supremely through the cross of Christ. All who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness for their sins because it was on that cross where Christ died that the abundant and steadfast love of the Lord and His faithfulness was supremely put on display and made known for you. It was on the cross as Christ's arms were held wide that God's arms were held wide to bring you back to Himself and embrace you and lavish you with his love. It is the steadfast love of the Lord where he laid our iniquity, our transgression, and our sin upon his own son who bore God's wrath and judgment on himself in our place so that all who believe would be forgiven of their sin and given the gift of eternal life. How great is God's love towards us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So great 
is this love that we can never be separated from it. When you know this kind of love, when you know this kind of God, you say, I never want to not know his love. And yet, do we ever fear that maybe we're not experiencing his love the way that we should? When we are worried about that, we go back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Is that your experience? Is that what you are going through? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Do you feel like you are being killed all the day long? Like there's no way out? Like there is no escape? Like you'll never know if you will know this kind of steadfast love of the Lord? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. What is it? What is it in your life that you believe is keeping you from knowing the love of God? Guess what? God's love is stronger. God's love is greater. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, love that will not let me go. It's to this love that we cling. Let's pray. How great is your love, O oh Lord. Greater than our sin, greater than our misery, greater than anything in this world. So great that you would forgive us, miserable sinners. So great that you would wash us clean. So great that you would remove all of our sin as far as the east is from the west. So great that you would give us the gift of life. Oh Lord, may your love change us today. May your love minister to us today. May it help us today. This great love of Jesus so that we might grow. So that we might be more like Jesus. So that we might love like Jesus. Oh Father, your name proclaimed means atonement, that we can be at one with you. And so I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that today they would run to you 
and know that you run to them as the father ran to his prodigal son. Run to them. Embrace them. Kiss them. Forgive them. Make them new. Those who are dead, make alive. Those who are lost, let them be found. For your glory, for your goodness, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.